Once again, Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Brothers and sisters, this is the holy word of God. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. The Old Testament lesson from which our sermon comes is Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 through 31, found on page 47 of your Pew Bibles. Once again, that is Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 through 31. Brothers and sisters, this too is the word of God. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Word of God so far. Let us pray that God would bless the preaching of it. 
Heavenly Father, as we hear your word preached this morning, we pray that you would slay us in the sense of helping us to understand our sins and raise us to life through Christ alone. Help us, Father, to hear about the eternal glory of the covenant of grace and all the wonderful benefits of being members of that covenant in Christ alone. Glorify yourself, Father, and edify your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Congregation of Christ and Friends, when God almost kills Moses, you see a very powerful illustration of God's anger against sin. Not even God's chosen servant, Moses, is immune from God's anger. All people are sinful. Even the people of God redeemed out of Egypt and people, of course, today. The only way anyone may be saved is through God pouring out His anger on His Son, Jesus Christ, in His or her place. That is the only way one may be saved, is if Christ is one's mediator and redeemer. And so the story before you is all about that, that grace in Christ, as you understand that circumcision is a sign of the work of Christ. It's a very interesting thing that the Old Testament here, very early on, has a very clear reference to the sign of Jesus' death uh, on the cross. And that's what you will understand and how there is comfort in signs, both the sign of circumcision and the sign of baptism. Well, the story opens with uh, Moses and his family on the way to Egypt. Moses uh, gained a wife and a family in the land of Midian uh, in the desert, and now he goes back into civilization, back into Egypt, And uh, Moses asked this very interesting question of his father-in-law, Jethro, if he may go to see if his brothers are still alive. This is somewhat striking because you know that Moses indeed knows that his brothers are alive. So is Moses lying when he talks to his father-in-law this way? No. Uh, The Hebrew here, and uh, in this context, we understand that Moses is asking in a very polite way. Uh, to go. So Moses isn't confused or lying. He's asking uh, according to custom in a very polite way if he may go. And so Jethro gives him this permission and off he goes. But on the way, God gives him assurance that the people who are actually seeking his life are now dead. So he says to Moses, everything's okay, go into Egypt. But you have to understand that this journey that Moses is taking is extremely dangerous because he's going head-to-head with Pharaoh. And of course, Pharaoh is considered to be a god. And he is the leader of one of the most mighty nations in the world. And little old Moses is going down into this very powerful place to take on Pharaoh. But brothers and sisters, you must understand, uh, one of the points of this text here is that God is more dangerous. That his anger is much more uh, threatening than Pharaoh's. So it's true that Pharaoh is evil. He hates God and his people. And Moses hears that when he approaches him with release of God's people, Pharaoh will refuse and God will harden his heart. We'll come back to what that means in a later sermon. But suffice it to say, God tells him that this will be a very difficult journey. Pharaoh won't want the people to go. But Pharaoh's threat and power are nothing compared to God and his anger. God tells Moses that after he hardens Pharaoh's heart, 
that Moses is to relate to Pharaoh that Israel is his firstborn son. That means the people of Israel are his special people with whom he has a relationship. And they are under his protection. Therefore, if Pharaoh doesn't let them go, God will kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. Not just his son, of course, but all the firstborn in Egypt. So what you see here is really a tremendous and great struggle of paternal power. God makes his claim on the people of Israel, and Pharaoh makes the same claim on his people. But Pharaoh will not change his mind, and God will harden his heart. And so this is a real battle, and blood will have to be shed in order for God actually to claim his people. And for God to shed blood is for God to act in righteous anger. That is the real danger in the story. It's God's anger. But, of course, through that anger, God's people will be redeemed. Therefore, Moses doesn't have to fear Pharaoh. God will punish him, take care of him. But Moses and all people need to fear God's anger because of sin. Not sin in the abstract, but God is angry against sinners. That is, people. And that is illustrated in the night of Moses' journey. And so in verses 24 and following, you hear one of the most unusual and strange stories in the Old Testament. During Moses' journey, God meets him at night. And there are some early commentators who say it's almost demonic. And there are ancient Near Eastern parallels in which demons sort of act this way, that they appear in the middle of the night to attack you. Of course, that's not going on at all, but it has that that sort of feel. It's just very strange. It's in the middle of the night. Uh, God comes along to kill uh, Moses because he is angry with him. Then all of a sudden, Zipporah, Moses' wife, circumcises their son and holds the foreskin not up to Moses' feet, but actually up to the son's feet, saying, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Now, added to the strangeness of the story, no one knows what that phrase means. They can conjecture and guess, but it's obscure. There's no parallel. Who knows what this means? But uh, Zipporah is obviously relieved that Moses is okay after this uh, incident. God leaves him alone. So the question here is, why was God ready to kill Moses, whom he had just commissioned to redeem his people from Israel? Why would God do this? And this is an important question, because people all the time, all the time in our culture say, you, you serve a strange God. I like the New Testament God, Jesus, but I don't like the Old Testament one because he's always killing people or he tells uh, Israel to go into the promised land and kill everybody. He's, he's bloodthirsty. And so we have to understand why God is angry, why he is ready to kill Moses, to give a good answer and to understand what God has for us here. Well, obviously, he was ready to kill Moses because he had not circumcised his son. That was his sin. Perhaps his father-in-law frowned against such practice, or his wife said, Moses, don't circumcise the baby. Who knows? But for whatever reason, he had not circumcised his son, and God is ready to kill him. And perhaps because Moses was in the process of dying, his wife had to take action. When the boy was circumcised, God relented in his anger. Now, a second question that's 
even more important than the first, is why is there such a harsh penalty for circumcising the son? Okay, so he didn't circumcise the son. Big deal. Moses obviously is being faithful to God. He's going down into Egypt. God, why can't you relax and let the guy go? I mean, he is the mediator, right, for the people of Israel. He didn't circumcise his son. He probably circumcised his other son. Isn't that good enough? Well, to understand why this is not a harsh penalty, but a just penalty, you have to understand the Abrahamic covenant. That is the covenant God made with Abraham and his kids, according to Genesis 15 and the sign given in Genesis 17. Now, just to review, a covenant is a mutually binding agreement between two parties, ordinarily. That's a biblical covenant. And according to Genesis 15, the two parties are God and Abraham and his descendants. Not just his immediate descendants, but his future descendants. We realize that includes you, all of God's elect throughout history. So two parties, God and God's people. Well, in Genesis 15, you must also understand that God did the work of making the covenant and Abraham and his kids received all the benefits of God's work. That's the unusual nature of this covenant. So God makes the arrangements. God told Abraham that he and his kids would be blessed for keeping the covenant and cursed for not keeping it. And then God promised that he himself would be cursed in Adam's, or rather Abraham's, and its kids' place if the covenant requirements were not fulfilled. And so we'll understand from the get-go that the covenant here is really a covenant of grace. It's work for God, but grace for His people. God does all the work, the people get the benefits of grace. And the blessings of the covenant were the presence of many kids in the promised land and eternal life. You understand from Hebrews that it's not just Israel that is the gift and the blessing, it's eternal life. Coming into the land is like coming into the land of heaven. That's what's promised. Those are the blessings of the covenant. The curses of the covenant were exile from the land and ultimately eternal death. And so you see, to be cursed is to die under God's anger or wrath forever. The covenant in Genesis 15, is actually made when God walks through cut animal halves, calling down curses upon himself if the requirements of the covenant are not fulfilled. So in sum, in this covenant, God does all the work to fulfill the requirements and Abraham and his kids get all the benefits of grace. Moreover, if Abraham and his children fail in their part of the deal, their obligations of the covenant, they would be under God's curse. But, God promises to take the curse upon Himself. Again, that's why we call this a covenant of grace. God does the work, and you get all the benefits. So that's Genesis 15. You go to Genesis 17, and you see here that God gives Abraham and his children circumcision as a sign of the covenant that He made in Genesis 15. He's not making a new covenant here. He's giving the sign of the covenant, an indication that God has entered into a relationship with his people. So Abraham, his children, and all males in his household must be circumcised. That means that when Abraham and his household are circumcised, 
They confess they believe God and His promises to bless them in the promised land. To receive the signs to say Amen to God's promises. Also they confess that they will be faithful to God obeying His law. But then in verses 10 and 13 of Genesis 17, God says that circumcision is so closely related to the covenant that circumcision is the covenant. Circumcision is the covenant. And God says this in verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off, recurse, cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Again, the sign of the covenant, circumcision, is so closely related to the covenant itself, the covenant is called circumcision. Therefore, that is why God says that anyone who refuses to circumcise or to be circumcised has broken the covenant. They're not believing in God. They're not following Him. Not really. And if they break the covenant in this way, God says that they will be cut off from their people. That is to be cursed. Because in Israel, to live in the land, to be a part of Israel, was to be in the kingdom of God. To be outside of that is to be cursed. And so you had to circumcise your kids. That said, do you believe in God? Uh, so you, the, the male parents, the, the servants, the kids, all had to be circumcised. And not to do so was to be cursed and under the anger of God. So it's funny, brothers and sisters, a lot of times we sort of separate the Old Testament and say, well, that's kind of for the Jews, or you know, there's certain ways to understand it, sort of this far-off uh, part of the Bible, but not at all. You have to understand that when in, in 15, Genesis 15, God is entering into a covenant with Abraham, he's entering into salvation. Uh, Abraham's entering into this sphere of salvation. He's being saved. And God's calling down curses upon himself. He'll be like the cut animals. He'll be cut in two. He will be cursed if the obligations are not met. Then in Genesis 17, the sign of the covenant is given. Uh, people say, yes, God, I believe in you. I will follow you. Then when they receive the sign. And to be specific, women are included in the family under the same sign. They don't receive the sign themselves, but they are included in the family. So if you take this as background to Genesis or Exodus 4 here, now you understand why God was ready to kill Moses. Moses hadn't circumcised his son. It doesn't matter why he didn't circumcise him. The problem was that he was uncircumcised, which is to deny what God commanded, and it was an implicit denial of the covenant God made with him through Abraham. Again, circumcision is the covenant. Therefore, when Zipporah circumcised the son, the covenant obligation to circumcise was met. God was no longer angry with Moses and let him alone. It was the promises of God to bless the recipients of the covenant, you see, who had the sign of circumcision that saved Moses. It was God being consistent with his own nature and his own promises to save him. After all, the fulfillment of the promises of God is the theme of Exodus as God redeems his people from evil Pharaoh. God, through Moses, will bring his people out and give them the promised land, the land that was promised generations and years and years before this time. 
And if the leader of God's people can't keep the covenant, then there has to be another leader or mediator for God's people. But God sustains Moses and will redeem his people from Egypt. And you see the assurance of this is found at the end of chapter 4 of Exodus when Moses, Aaron, and the elders speak to the Israelites and they believe and then they worship God. And so the first part of the mission has been accomplished. In summary, the story of Moses and his family descending into Egypt is a great story of danger and intrigue. As Moses moves closer to the danger of confronting Pharaoh, he also moves closer to the action of God to redeem his people, which involves God's righteous anger. In Abraham, I'm sorry, in God's redemption, he is simply fulfilling promises he made to Abraham and his kids. That is to bless them and to give them many kids in the promised land. And the promised land signifies heaven and eternal life. And the covenant God made with Abraham and his kids, which includes the people of Israel and Egypt, he promised to curse himself because of people's sin. That is, God knew that no one could keep the covenant perfectly because all are sinners. That means Abraham, that means Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the people of Israel, and you. Sin is the problem. She doesn't allow you to obey God perfectly as he requires. The covenant God made with Abraham and his kids is the same as the new covenant and the New Testament made through Jesus Christ. So the old covenant, or rather the Abrahamic covenant, and the new covenant are one and the same. Both together they are the covenant of grace. And God's promise to bear the burden of the broken covenant in the Old Testament by taking the curses of it, is fulfilled in the promise of Jesus Christ, bearing the curses in his body on the cross, which creates the new covenant. That is, for God to curse himself because of people's sin, is for Christ to be cursed at the cross, calling down curses upon himself, as it were, being like the cut animals, dead and dying. And so you see, the Old Testament people look forward to Christ's death and resurrection, and you look back to it. Circumcision, the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament, and baptism, the sign of the covenant in the New Testament, both point to Christ's death. Very important to understand. One covenant of grace, the Abrahamic covenant and the New Covenant, two different signs. And so circumcision, you see, in the Old, baptism in the New, both point to Christ's death, his burial, and resurrection. It's all about the work of Christ, you see. So sometimes you know, people almost act and believe like people in the Old Testament are saved differently from people today. Not true at all. People are only saved through the bloody, sacrificial death of Christ. There's no other way. And so, you see, Christ died as a curse in your place to appease God's anger against you. So you wouldn't be cursed. You're not cursed. You're blessed because of Christ. Both circumcision and baptism are signs that you are protected in Christ, or rather you're protected against God's anger because of Christ. Again, brothers and sisters, the real problem in life is God's anger. All the crazy stuff that people do, often Christians or not, is because they're afraid of God and His anger. That's, that's a good thing if you're outside of Christ, but not for Christians. 
God's not angry at you any longer. So just to be clear, how do you understand circumcision and baptism both pointing to Christ's death as signs of salvation for you against God's anger? Well, Paul makes that link very clearly in Colossians chapter 2. Now this is um, a very clear instance in which we see that um, infant baptism is linked with circumcision, but also it's very clear about both signs meaning the same thing. So Colossians 2:11 and following, In him that is in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. To be circumcised in the Old Testament was to be marked as belonging to God. One who was circumcised was consecrated to God, set apart for God. Also circumcision signified that you were not under God's anger. You were saved from His anger. And Paul links circumcision as being a set, set apart for God with baptism, which also marks God's people as belonging to God and not being under His anger. If you are a baptized person, you are a Christian. If you are not baptized, you are not a Christian. You bear the mark of God when you are baptized, and hence you enjoy the protection of God. And here in Colossians, when Paul says, In Christ you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, he is saying that you today have been saved by what Christ did at the cross. And that's what Paul means by saying, putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So Paul doesn't mean here he's talking about Jesus' personal circumcision when he was eight days old. No, he's saying that Christ was crucified. It's another word here for circumcision. He was cut off in his whole body at the cross. And so for the Old Testament people, circumcision, you see, pointed forward to these benefits of Christ's death. He was cut off in their place. Now, baptism points back to the benefits of Christ being cut off on the cross. And you see, that's why this knife sign and cutting stuff is so important. What did God say in Genesis 15? I will be like these split animal halves. I would be cut if the covenant obligations are not met. And then those who receive the sign are cut. Uh, there's also the same sort of thing. God will take on uh, the judgment then ultimately Christ is cut. He's killed by the judgment of God. So you see, therefore, Paul's bringing both these signs together, circumcision and baptism. They are both signs of God's judgment and salvation. Remember, God says in Genesis 17 that anyone not keeping the covenant by circumcision would, would be cut off or cursed. And this is vividly illustrated by the cutting of the foreskin in circumcision. Why? Cutting involved here the shedding of blood. If one was not circumcised, he was saying that he would be cut off by his own blood. He would be sacrificed. If one received the sign, one is saying that God would provide the blood through his own sacrifice. He would say, yes, I believe you, God, when you say that you will curse yourself in my place. Of course, that is to believe in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
Well, after Christ was cut off on the cross, one professed his belief in Christ's death by receiving water baptism, a sign of the covenant of grace. Water baptism is also a sign of judgment and salvation, isn't it? It's not a bloody rite because Christ's blood was already shed. But it is a sign of judgment and salvation nonetheless. If you don't receive the sign, you die as water would drown the Egyptians when they go into the Red Sea. If you receive the sign of baptism, you will be saved through it as Israel was going through the Red Sea, not being drowned by the waters. And since baptism is a sign of the same covenant as circumcision, it must be applied to those who profess faith in Christ and their children. The command is as serious as the old command. You had to circumcise your kids. New Testament, you have to baptize your kids. That's why Peter says in Acts chapter 2, this promise for you Jews is, is both for you and your children. Of course. Or 1 Corinthians 7.14, Paul says that uh, the child or children of even one Christian parent is considered to be holy. That means they are set apart. They are consecrated by God. They belong to God. That's why you have to baptize them. In conclusion, the story of Moses going into Egypt is an illustration of God's work to redeem his people who were in bondage to Pharaoh. Pharaoh has made his claim on Israel and God has made the same claim. God will redeem his people from Pharaoh, but it will be costly. Blood will be shed. For God to shed blood is for God to be angry with sinners. Pharaoh and the Egyptians are sinners, but so are Israel and all people. The fact that Moses almost dies illustrates that all people are sinners. Even though God calls Moses, it doesn't mean he gets some special dispensation, as if he were really that sinful. He should die because of his sin, just like Pharaoh and the Egyptians. All people should die because of their sin against God by breaking His law. That's one of the hardest things for people to hear both in the church today and outside the church. No, you should die. You should be cursed because there is a God and you have not obeyed Him. You don't care about God. That's an effective means of evangelism in the sense that we have the opportunity, we can tell people, no, look, you're under God's wrath if you do not profess faith in Christ alone and are not baptized. Well, back to the story. When Moses and his family received the sign of circumcision, they are confessing that God does the work to save them. Circumcision illustrates by cutting the foreskin that blood must be shed on the person's behalf. The shedding of blood turns God's anger away from those who believe in Him. And of course, this is illustrated later in Exodus when the blood of lambs is applied to the door of God's people. And so the picture you have there is God is pouring out His wrath on this whole region of people. The only people that are saved are those who are circumcised who have the blood of the lamb applied to their households. And the rest, of course, perish. Well, the blood points forward to the blood of Christ shed on the cross. That blood turns God's anger away from His people forever so that His people have peace with God. You have peace with God. So baptism applied to God's people today also points to Christ's shed blood. Those who bear that sign confess that they believe in Christ's atoning blood 
and that they have this peace with God. Infants and children too, who bear that sign, are raised to understand they belong to God and are safe from His anger through Christ. And believing parents applying the covenant sign, baptism, to helpless babies, powerfully illustrates the work of Christ alone to sinful people. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.